From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire. With writer Chuck Klosterman and humorist Tiffany Midge. With music from Taco Cat and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you, Elena Passarello, and thanks, everybody, for coming out to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Our theme this week is social studies, which is going to make sense uh, as we talk to our various guests. Uh, We distributed a little questionnaire to the audience here at the Alberta Rose. We asked them, if you could write a dissertation on any subject, what would it be? And we have a Mm -hmm. bunch of those answers that you've collected there, Elena. We're going to hear those throughout the show. Yes. I think... uh, if I could write a dissertation on, on any subject, I would tackle, I think, the chronically under-researched topic of ranking late-night fast food options. Whoa. So not just fast food options in general, but like... Late night. At a, a p.m. Yes. At, when it's dark out, it's late at night, it's a whole other thing. And that is why coming in, uh, number one in a runaway <laughs> late-night fast food options of national chains would be Jack in the Box. Hmm. Right? Okay. The crowd is... Mm. Is it just because they're open late? or uh, That's a big part of it. Okay. okay. <laughs> they, they present a menu that is so flagrantly anti-health <laughs> I know. that you need to eat it at a time when God cannot see what you're it's doing. That's true. <laughs> the, and lest anyone think I'm trying to curry favor with the Jack in the Box Corporation and get them to sponsor the show, I will also mention that at night it is the best place to go and in the daylight, it is the worst place to go. <laughs> it is like the vampire of fast food options. Oh, nice. Should never be visited in the daytime. Um, <laughs> second place, probably Taco Bell. Okay, for right? late night. Late night eating. I feel like that would be most people's first choice. It seems like Taco Bell is part of a lot of late night eating narratives. That I've It heard. is. Although, here's the thing. The Taco <laughs> Bell menu, it really explores the question of how many different items can you make out of three ingredients? Mm. And it turns out it's 73,000. <laughs> I would say third place has got to be probably McDonald's. Okay. The they cl- are going to try to tell you at some hour of the night that their shake machine is broken. It's not broken. They just don't want to clean it again. <laughs> and I respect that, but, like, we're adults. Don't lie to me. Just tell me you don't want to make me a, a McFlurry or whatever. <laughs> You're an actual academic, Elena. You're a professor at Oregon State University. Sort of, yes. So I you am. know about this world. Like, wh- what would you write a dissertation about? Uh, well, I didn't have to write a dissertation because I only have a master's degree. Like, <gasps> Does Oregon State know this? Shh, don't tell them. <laughs> don't tell anybody. Sorry. Are we on in Corvallis? <laughs> Not anymore. Anyway, when I was in grad school, though, I did have a really interesting run-in with a bunch of dissertations. The school that I went to, the University of Iowa, the last year that I was there, there was a huge flood. There had actually been a flood the year before called a 100-year flood. And then there was another flood that was even worse the next year, so they just called it a 500-year flood. And the library uh, was right on the river. That's a good place for it. Yeah, all the books, everything that could get wet was basically going to be underwater. The National Guard was there with sandbags, and they put up this citizen all-call because the thesis and dissertation room 
is in the basement. And it's basically, if you write a thesis back in the day, pre-digital, you would uh, print it up and they would bind it and they would put it in this basement room. And they knew that they wanted to save the dissertations and theses of people like Flannery O'Connor and Raymond Carver. And so we all ran down to the library, hundreds of people in Iowa City, and we made like how the Grinch stole Christmas, how they decorate the tree by everybody sits next to each other and they pass it down and up. And we all, like hundreds of us went from the basement to dry land and we just handed each other every single thesis up the stairs so that we could save it. So that all of these uh, important American writers and thinkers and composers and scientists, their their work, these original copies of their work was saved. And it was like one of the coolest experiences. I was next to a little child on my right and an old man on my left. And we were unloading things alphabetically. So when my favorite writers would come by, I'd try to like slow them <laughs> down or like bend over to tie my shoes so I could just hold, you know, uh, John Irving's thesis or Jory Graham, one of my favorite poets' thesis. Wow. So even though I've never written a dissertation, I have held a lot of really cool ones. <laughs> <laughs> We asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater uh, what they would write their dissertation on, and they passed those answers forward. Elena, what are we seeing? Here's one from Joanne. Uh, Joanne would like to do a PhD dissertation analysis of the history of audience participation at the midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That would be very, 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 very fun. When I was... Uh, maybe 15 or 16, uh, this, this young woman came to our Christian school who had been kicked out of a different school. <laughs> so her parents, I think, sent her to our school as punishment. And she knew about rebellious things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm. And me and her and a bunch of our friends, we went to the midnight showing How at the Neptune you? Theater in Seattle, 15 or 16. Oh, my gosh. And it blew my mind. Oh, I bet. That's, that's young for, for that amount of stimulus. It was <laughs> stimulating, to say the least. And I would like someone to write a paper on it so I can understand what went on for me that night, because I'm still trying to unpack yeah. it. Oh, that's so cool. I, I, yeah, Joanne, I think you need to write that. Okay, what else? We have this anonymous dissertation okay. suggestion, but I think it's really necessary. It's the kind of academic thinking that we need in this day and age. Okay. It's a dissertation called, Do People Really Look Like Their Dogs? (laughs) I mean, is that really true, right? Like, is it just like a joke that, like, Lady and the Tramp started or 101 Dalmatians? You know, or do people start out looking very different from their dogs, and do they look more like their dogs the longer they have the dogs? And what if the person has two dogs? I wrote this audience card. Yeah, this was your dissertation, wasn't it, (laughs) Passarello? We actually have somebody waiting just off stage who's written a sort of a dissertation, albeit a very funny one, about living as a Native American woman in our current version of America. She's a citizen of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, the former humor columnist for Indian Country Today, and her latest book is Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's. (laughs) Please welcome (laughs) Tiffany Midge to Livewire. Tiffany, welcome to Livewire. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I loved this book, and I have to say that um, 
I felt a little, uh, slightly embarrassed at reading the foreword and reading parts of the book because I realized I had to check my own thoughts about what we think of as Native American writing. Because one of the big things that this book kind of pushes back on is this idea that Native American writing is always uh, a proud warrior standing on a hill staring over a <laughs> valley. That there's like no humor in necessarily in the, the written Native American experience. Yeah, you got that right. There's this idea and this prevalent narrative of, you know, what a Native American is or what Native America is. So this book really pushes back against that quite a bit. <laughs> How do you think that myth got started, this idea of, of Native, particularly Native American writing, uh, just being something that's so stoic and serious and, and not something that has a lot of room for humor? Well, I mean, the B-Westerns is like a really big factor. Um, and I've been working really hard just lately, like in all the press and, and all of the copy for the promotional stuff you see, and, and other writers too, you oftentimes see, you know, uh, Tiffany Midge, a contemporary Native American. And you see that again, like, oh, she has things to say about the modern life, you know? And it, I mean, I don't think people realize, but we are shapeshifters, right? And, <laughs> And also we travel through time mm. because you have to say, well, we live within the contemporary experience because I just flew in from the 1900s. <laughs> and so they always have to like qualify that, you know, the contemporary experience. What was your initial intention when you set out? I know you, you're a poet and a humorist, but when you wanted to make a, a, a monograph, a big long book, what was the, the driving force for this particular project? Um, originally, this was a book of poems. Oh, wow. I know. Huh. <laughs> yeah, there's this um, book um, called Citizen. Yeah. And I was, you know, sending out these pieces um, as Citizen, only the funny version of Citizen. Great. Um, and all of a sudden, it just occurred to me to, you know, make it a book of essays. Yeah, and people yeah. think that book often is a, a Claudia Rankine Citizen sort of toes the line between essay and poetry as well. Does the essay let you play more than poetry? Or is there something that you can do in essay in terms of form and being experimental that you can't do with poems? I don't know. I think they're very interchangeable now. It's just like anything goes. Yeah. It used to just be a prose poem, you know, and uh -huh. now it's just all over the place, I think. Cool. And it just really opens it up. Uh, we're talking to Tiffany Midge. Her new book is Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's. Um, you've also uh, taken on the topic in this book of Pretendians. Can you explain what a pretendian is? <laughs> They're different from a born Indian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's people that discover later in life, like when they take their DNA tests and things like that, that they they have like this native, you know, ancestry. And I call those folks born againdians. <laughs> and then the pretendian are the folks that, well, it's basically around the same thing, but they, they don't have any ancestry whatsoever, but they have like mythologies in their families. And so they basically carry themselves off as a Native American person. That's a real thing. Yeah. I, I was absolutely shocked to read in your book that you had uh, an, in, an encounter with a person who's become kind of pretty notorious now, a woman named Rachel Dolezal, who a lot of people may have heard of. She's a woman who's white, but uh, she uh, tried to present herself as African-American uh, because she feels that she is transracial. You met her when she identified as Native American? What happened? I mean, I don't want to give away the, the spoof or anything like that, but I'm, I wasn't an investigative reporter, and I didn't interview Rachel Dolezal. <laughs> 
But because I write satire and humor, I pretended that I did. Okay. Did I throw you for a loop? Did you I... totally did. Really? I really thought that happened. Really I was telling did? everyone in the green room. I, know. We were... I was like, you are not going to believe this. <laughs> that lady has been doing that for years. It keeps happening to Wait, me. Wait, is everybody who interviews you bringing this up? They bring up this other story that I wrote about thousands of jingle dress dancers arriving at the Standing Rock protester site. And I wrote about that, and every, I, I, it was like viral, and people all thought that hundreds of thousands of jingle dressers magically appeared in the hillsides. <laughs> like, yeah. I also thought that was true. <laughs> so did the New York Times reporter that called me. Uh, yeah. When you're working in satire, how do you plant these signals into the the pieces that you make, the little, just the little winks that let you know that like... And could you be more clear with them? <laughs> I thought that I was, but I think that I just got to wink it yeah. the whole yeah. time. Or because... maybe it's part of the, the implication is that we know so little about what's happening in the world of Native people, contemporary Native American people, <laughs> that we will believe anything. I and know. And so if the joke's on us, then maybe it's a successful interaction with this book, you know? Right. I think we need to take a break and I need to get myself together. Uh, this is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're talking to Tiffany Midge. Her new, lightly fictionalized book is Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's. This is Livewire. I'll be back in just a moment. Hey, have you subscribed to the Livewire newsletter yet? Every week we share live show dates there as well as peaks from behind the scenes at each episode. The newsletter is also a great way to be part of our engaged community of listeners. You can discover acclaimed authors and thinkers, hilarious stand-up comedy, and of course, live musical acts. You can subscribe today by clicking on Stay Informed over at LiveWireRadio.org. This is LiveWire Radio from PRI. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon, I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We're talking to writer Tiffany Midge. Her latest book is Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's. Yeah. Uh, could you read something from the book, Tiffany? Yeah, absolutely. All right, what are, what are we going to hear? <clears throat> well, um, read like me. Now, when, when you hear this, ask yourself, if you were reading this, if you were a public radio host, might you think this really happened? <laughs> All right, this is Tiffany Midge reading here on Livewire. In 2015, the media exploded with coverage about a woman who claimed she was African-American. Her name is Rachel Dolezal, and her name has since become synonymous with racial scandal and identity confusion. While the world watched Dolezal's tall tales unfold, and while her web of lies and deception grew more and more tangled with each passing news day, I inwardly sighed and tried to impress upon my social circle, those in real life and on social media, this is nothing new for us natives. And to borrow an apropos lyric from Shania Twain, a white pop star from the 90s whose own identity was not without its share of complications, her stepfather was Ojibwe, that don't impress me much. <laughs> Well, wouldn't you know it, like the ever-ready Energizer Bunny, Dolezal is back in the news again, giving interviews and promoting her new book. So I thought that this would be an opportunity to share my fascinating story about the time I personally met Rachel Dolezal back when she used to be indigenous. Yes, 
That's right. Rachel Dolezal used to be Native American, an obscure fact only I and a handful of people are privy to. Today, I'm breaking my silence. <laughs> it happened over a decade ago while I was writing an investigative think piece in response to pretendianism. Critical questions I wished to explore were, who are these pretendian persons? Where did they come from? Why are they here? Why did that one steal my job? What's with all the turquoise accessorizing and black shoe polish? I needed some answers. Interestingly enough, since pretendians make up somewhere in the ballpark of 54% of the population in the United States, I didn't have to journey far for answers. It turns out it wasn't the epic quest that I'd imagined. I called up a friend of a friend of this one guy who had a cousin who knew a pretendian, and the pretendian graciously agreed to meet me at a nearby tea shop for an interview. Upon entering the tea shop, aptly called Animal Spirit Tea Shop, I noted the ambient tones of the so-called Native American flute wafting from the speakers, the sweet aroma of sage and patchouli, patrons lounging on large cushions, some quietly talking, some blissfully nodding off. I had the odd sensation of being inside an opium den, circa 1920 San Francisco. The pretendian subject's name was Faith Eagle Nebula, and yes, that's right, today as Rachel Dolezal. Ms. Dolezal, or rather Ms. Eagle Nebula, indicated in her email that she had long black hair, a weave as it turns out, and that she would be wearing a peasant skirt and Birkenstocks, a description that fit 99% of the patrons in the shop, <clears throat> which forced me to break out my specialized Indian radar to locate her. And when that didn't work, fortunately, the grandfather stepped in and brought Faith Eagle Nebula to me. Faith tapped me on the shoulder and introduced herself, pure magic. <laughs> the book is a fascinating and a fun read. It's called Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's Tiffany Midge, everybody, right here on Livewire. Tiffany Midge, everybody. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder. But with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Hey, it's Luke. Uh, do not go anywhere because coming up, we have writer Chuck Klosterman, who says writing fiction can actually be surprisingly hard sometimes. If it's a story, I'd have to make you up and make up a table. It's hard to make up a table. You wouldn't think it would be. You know, square piece of wood, legs, but it's harder than that. That is coming up in just a minute here on Livewire. This is Live Wire Radio, coming to you from Portland, Oregon. Our theme this week is social studies. We asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater, if you could write a dissertation on any subject, what would it be? And 
Elena Passarello, you've been collecting some of those submissions. What are people mm -hmm. saying? What would they, what would they uh, write their dissertation about? Here's one from Lisa. Lisa's dissertation, short and sweet, would be on awesome seals. <laughs> only the awesome ones? <laughs> yeah, only awesome seals. And we don't know, you know, dissertations are notoriously, they have those really long titles. There's usually a colon. I always joke that if I got a PhD, my uh, dissertation would be colon, colon, a study of incontinence. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But maybe you don't need a colon when you come up with an idea like awesome seals. I feel like if I was tasked with reading dissertations, I'd put that at the top of the stack. Awesome seals? That, yeah, that just sounds like a fun dissertation to read. What else are you seeing in that pile? Here's one uh, from Melody. Melody would like to write a dissertation on how the plots of pre-2000 era movies would crumble if cell phones were a thing back then. I know, right? <laughs> None of the, like, we were supposed to meet in Times Square and we didn't, and now right. we think we don't love each other. None of that stuff would have happened. Right, or like, I guess the movies where people get lost those movies because right. it, it would you just oh no i still get lost even with the current technology because <laughs> i often don't trust it which is a real mistake because it knows what it's doing uh what else are we seeing over there oh here's one from uh we have a little thing on the audience card that asks to circle what age range you're in and this person is so young they had to add a 10 to 17 age range so this is from a young student dissertation okay. writer wow. dimitri all right. And Dimitri's dissertation would be how to launch a monkey into outer space in 1,000 easy steps and 50 hard steps. <laughs> oh, I don't even want to know what the hard steps are. <laughs> poor monkey. I mean, step one, get a monkey is hard. Yeah, right? exactly. This turns out more hard steps than we thought. Okay, one more. Okay, uh, here's one from, I think, Anne. Anne's dissertation would be, witty women make better leaders. Oh, wait, no. Why women make better leaders. <laughs> I think they can also be witty, though. I don't think yeah. that's... Yeah, no, yeah. Well, I mean, if a woman is leading, she's probably had to en yeah, en deal with uh, a employ lot of... some wit yeah, in her time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. This is Livewire. Our theme this week is social studies. There might not be anybody out there who studies our social lives and then documents them in a more interesting way than our next guest. He's the best-selling author of many, many books. His latest is a collection of short stories called Raised in Captivity that's been called Compulsively Readable by me <laughs> this week as I was compulsively reading it. He also co-founded the popular website Grantland and served as the ethicist for the New York Times Magazine. Please welcome Chuck Klosterman to Livewire. Chuck, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Uh, you call this book fictional nonfiction. Uh, it was a delight to read. Uh, how did the ideas come about? Was it like, were it things, was it things you saw in the news and you tweaked a little bit or just ideas you had like, what if such and such happened? Hmm. Well, uh, I, I, for about five years, um, anytime I had a strange idea, I would put it into the notes function of my phone. You know, if I, if I was just kind of hanging out, I would think of something and I would just put it in my phone. And then I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these. So I was like, 
here's something I can do. I'll make them into stories. How many of those ideas were actually good when you went back and looked in the notes file? Well, uh, I suppose arguably none. <laughs> um, I, um, I, you know, I, I, some, some of them were, were better than others, I will admit. I mean, the fact that, you know, marijuana being legal here really affected this process. Yeah. Um, because sometimes there would be a, a, an idea and it would be pretty complete and it would have, within one sentence, it would have kind of the idea of a narrative and sort of a theme. And then sometimes it would just be things like, only the moose is free. <laughs> And then I would see it and, and the next day or whatever, and, and then um, I couldn't really remember what the larger narrative was, so I just had to convince myself it was a bad idea. So it wasn't even necessarily that it was a bad idea, you didn't write down enough context. Well, it was also probably a bad idea, <laughs> but uh, I don't exactly know, you know, it's like, like, People will say like, you know, where do you get your ideas? I guess maybe a better question might be, why do you get ideas? I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, it was just, you know, you can only do what you're compelled to do. And I was compelled to do this. I just, I, I love, I've read a lot of your nonfiction and it's great, but that seems to be something, something happens. There's a very surprising high school basketball game in Montana, right? And you write about it. But this is like your brain going, what if you got into first class on the airplane and you opened the bathroom and there was just a puma in there? Yeah. <laughs> what next? Like, I love, that's the opening story in the book. A guy is, uh, he's flying in first class, maybe for the first time, he's pretty excited about it, and he goes up and he opens the bathroom door and there's just a puma in there, and then he just goes back to his seat. And I, to me, what I took that to be a kind of a meditation on is the fact that at least when I'm in a place that I'm uncomfortable and unfamiliar and it feels fancy to me, I'll just assume, I guess that's what happens up here. My need to fit in is so cavernous yeah. that I would just I would have gone the whole flight not saying anything because I, that would show me up to be the rube that I am well okay the thing is this is what is great about doing a fiction project that's not what that story is about but <laughs> I'm on a hot streak like, this show but your interpretation your, uh, your interpretation though is completely uh, reasonable right okay so what, uh, what that story are you actually, telling me the stories in this yeah. book are not true okay so, so what that story actually is about, this guy gets on this plane, he's in first class for the first time, and he's thinking maybe my whole life is different now and this is proof. And then he goes and he opens the door and there's the puma and he goes back and there's a guy, kind of a rich older guy in first class who just says like, oh, why do you think this happened? And they just kind of theorize about it. Well, that story is actually about the fact that I came from this kind of rural farm in North Dakota where pretty much everybody was poor. Uh, we didn't even know it. <laughs> like it just, everyone seemed the same. It's like, you know. Um, and then I kind of moved into um, a middle class life to now where I guess, I mean, it seems bizarre to say this, but like I'm, I'm almost rich. I feel rich, you know. And that evolution happened faster than I was psychologically ready to understand. Um, and that's sort of what this story is about, trying to reconcile how my life has changed in this way, and I don't really understand the reality that I was lucky enough to fall into. 
Now, if I wrote an essay about that, and you were like, I think it's about fitting in, I'd be like, that was a bad essay. But if I write a short story about a guy seeing a puma having that experience, you can think whatever you want. <laughs> like, it, it works just as well. Yeah. yeah. Is it, do you find writing fiction to be, uh, in a way, easier because you can just make the stuff up, or is it harder because you have to make the stuff up? Um, it's harder. It is, you know, I mean, it's easier in the sense that uh, it's less clear when you've done a bad job, because you can just say it's subjective. But if I, if I was doing a nonfiction story about this experience, I would just look at you, and I would describe what you look like, and how you're dressed, and you're not wearing a tie, but you're dressed up, and then you're sitting here as well, and I could describe your hair, and I look out in the audience, and everything is black, and there's a distance to the... I could just kind of describe all that, but if it's a story, I'd have to make you up and make up a table. It's hard to make up a table. You wouldn't think it would be, you know, square piece of wood, legs, but it's harder than that. So it, fiction is harder, it's slower, but it is more satisfying. I mean, I know this is the kind of thing that people say when they're just trying to sell a book, but of the 11 books that I've written, this was the most fun since the first one. I mean, it really did feel like actually creative, where nonfiction is more of a reactive process. You're just sort of reacting to what the world actually is. And this one, you get to just completely make one up. And, and, and that is fun. I mean, I feel lucky that I have a life where the main thing I do is pretty fun. That seems incredibly fortunate. Uh, this is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Chuck Klosterman. His latest book is Raised in Captivity. Um, you uh, seem to have a real interest in the intersection of small towns and sports. Now, for people listening to this, maybe who think sports are kind of a waste of time or or not worth writing about? Why, why are sports so meaningful to you, and why are they something that seems to come up in a lot of your work? Well, you know, there's a limited number of things I know about, <laughs> and sports is one of them. So <laughs> that's part of it. Um, I played sports when I was young. I was a sports writer when I first got into journalism, um, and it is a, a situation where um, unlike life, there are actually rules. Like, you can really understand sports in a way that you can't understand life. I mean, sports is a simulation of life, but it's a fixed simulation. Um, that might be part of it. Um, the other part of it might be I, I just like it, you know? I just enjoy it. I find it incredibly relaxing to watch sports because I can follow it, and I can also think about other things. You have this great story in the book about a high school in Oklahoma that gets this kind of like real like uh, outsider football coach who basically teaches the team one play. Mm -hmm. That's it. They're yeah. just going to do one offensive play. He doesn't teach them defense. doesn't teach them really anything about football except this one inc incredibly intricate play. Did you invent that play in your mind, and do you think it would work in real life? Uh, well, obviously it wouldn't work in real life. Why not? Because... I would just become a football coach and do it then. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Do you secretly want to be a football coach? <laughs> well, you know, it is, it's funny that you mentioned that. You know, you have those, you have those books that you, you fill out when you're a senior in high school, and um, it's like you, it, it has all the things in your class and like, oh, who has the best eyes and who's the yeah. best dresser? And there's one page where you, you, you talk about what you want to be doing in 25 years. Okay. Well, I came across that book 
when I was moving a while ago. I was moving to Portland, and I was moving all my stuff. I came across this senior yearbook, and I find this page where I describe what I aspire to be doing in 25 years, like my fantasy, right? And uh, my fantasy as a high school student is to be an offensive coordinator for a college in the uh, SEC, okay? (laughs) And what I think is so interesting about this in retrospect is that in my greatest fantasy, I'm only the offensive coordinator. (laughs) Like, I'm not even the coach. It's like, what a weird thing. And I'm not, I'm not coaching in the pros. I'm coaching in the best college conference, I guess. Hell but yeah. just, it seems odd that my fantasy is that, like, I would control a fraction of the team and then also, like, have to get clearance from my boss. I, so I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. The, the idea, the play did come first, this play in this story, which ends up becoming kind of secondary to the larger idea. Um, I, I did try to imagine this, this, a situation where you could have an offensive play that would always gain 2.7 yards no matter what happened, no matter what the defense did. Because if you did that four times in a row, you'd have a first down, and then your opponent would just psychologically surrender to the realization <laughs> that you have basically destroyed the conception of the game. You yeah. know? So, so yes, okay, yeah. There's a lot of uh, pseudoscience in this book, in these stories. I would say science. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, actually. How much research did you do for things like what are, what are the chances of a whale getting struck by lightning? Okay, that came from a real conversation. That came from a real conversation I had with my friends when we were, we were all together uh, at uh, the beach in Fire Island. It's like in, off, off of New York and Long Island. And, and we were talking about what would be the most incredible thing to experience? And uh, we eventually concluded it would be to see a whale breaching out of the water struck by lightning. Um, so uh, then we looked it up. We looked it up, you know, and, and, and this is something that is both amazing and disappointing about the internet. We were not the first person to ever think that. Like, other people had wondered this. Google yes, yeah. filled the question in yeah. as you were halfway yeah. through it. I, you know, I, I, you can't, there's no pictures of it. You can't YouTube whale struck by lightning. It doesn't seem to, I mean, you can, but nothing yeah. will come up. Um, so there doesn't seem to be any footage of this, but, you know, in infinity, everything that can happen will happen. So it must happen, right? So, you know. Because you write some stats in this yeah. particular story about like how frequently it happens. Was that just kind of an educated guess? Well, yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't, uh, you know, get anybody from MIT here to fact check yeah. that. Like that, they might be Noted imperfect. whale school they MIT. Might, might be imperfect, but you know. I mean, you, you can figure, I mean, you figure the number of whales in the world. There's a number, you can find that number. You figure the amount of time lightning strikes the, the surface of the world. And then you figure out what percentage of the earth is covered by water. And you can kind of make up a number. <laughs> there is a description, Chuck, of, of, I guess, you and your work in the book jacket that I just need to read. And I'm going to mess up some of these names because I don't even recognize them. From the book jacket of this book, Raised in Captivity, if Saul Steinberg and Italo Calvino had adopted a child from a Romanian orphanage and raised him on Gary Larson and Thomas Bernhard, he would still be nothing like Chuck Klosterman. <laughs> What does that okay. even mean? Uh, okay, uh, I did not write that. 
Like it was, I was real embarrassed when I saw that. Wait, you don't have control of what's in that part of the book? No. Well, I mean, do I have control? I guess I could have flipped out at my editor trying to compliment me, but I was like, he probably knows about this more than I do. I thought, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I know, I, I, I'm kind of glad you brought it up. I, I think it's dumb. I think it's real stupid. It's embarrassing to me. It's not true in any way. I mean, obviously it's not literally true, but it's also not figuratively true. I mean, I see a big difference between writing and publishing. I love writing. I think it is so wonderful. It's just that I can't believe that my life is just being able to do this and make these things up and getting and rich. Yeah, and get paid for it for something that gives society nothing. Like I give society nothing. I totally disagree. Yeah. Um, well, okay, I mean, I don't even got to be compared to a neurosurgeon like even like you you got me on this show, right? Yes. Okay. But if the power in your house went out, you'd rather have an electrician there than me. You would not be like, oh, if Chuck's here, maybe he'll come up with an interesting anecdote about this. But like, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't, there's nothing I give back that we need. Everything I give back is like extra stuff that's just like, oh, it's like, well, we, we're in a rich country. We have some, oh, I'll buy this. You know, it's like, that's great. You know, I'm great. I'm real happy, okay? But so, so I feel really, oh, uh, what was the, the original question was? Uh, 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 uh. This is classic Italo Calvino. Uh, yeah. This oh, is classic. Yes, yes, yes. But what I'm saying, the difference between writing and publishing, okay? It's like, so I do the writing, you know, but then the publishing is a different thing, you know? I mean, actually right now, this is part of the process of the publishing, like going out here. Yeah. That maybe there's people out there listening to this, and I'm going to sign books afterwards, and maybe somebody's like, I didn't know who that dude was, but I'll, I got 20 bucks here. You know, that would be great. You know, it'd be great, you know? So that's what, you know, so, but those are different things to me. So right. what they put, like, the, I didn't design the cover of the book. I didn't design the back of the book. I don't pick, you know, I don't pick the font, you know? See, I, th- that's news to me. And if I were to write a book, I would be deeply concerned about what the cover looked like if they compared me to Gary Larson in the jacket. Because I would just be so, I would, it would feel like it was such a representation of me and my heart and everything. I was like that at first. <laughs> I was. Like, the, like the first half of my career probably I was like that and I I feel like I've I've realized that there there are things that like that I just can't control and and there's not really a uh there's not much satisfaction from controlling it you know all right we got to take a quick break uh we are talking to Chuck Klosterman his new book is raised in captivity uh this is live wire and we'll be back in just a minute hey special thanks this week to Dale Hubber of Portland, Oregon, and Martin Williams, also of Portland, Oregon. Dale and Martin are part of the Livewire member community and generously support this show with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it's genuinely what allows us to keep this whole thing going. So a big thanks to Dale and Martin. Hey, welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI, coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater. Portland, Oregon. Uh, my name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host here with Elena Passarella. We also have writer Chuck Klosterman here. His new book is Raised in Captivity. Uh, Chuck, like most Americans, we value your opinion on all matters. But in this day and age, it's not enough to just have an opinion. It's got to be a hot take. 
The last time we had you on Livewire, you were kind enough to give us some fiery, knee-jerk opinions on things, even though that's not really your style. Um, and uh, to thank you for that kindness, we're going to make you do that again. <laughs> In a segment we're calling Chuck Klosterman's Reluctant Hot Takes, The Deuce. We're looking for some hot takes, baby. Yeah, the Livewire house band, everybody. So I'm going to fire some of these at you, and we just like to get your hot take on it, Chuck Klosterman. Um, how about, what's your reluctant hot take on electric scooters? Electric scooters? Yeah. Those like, like the little... ones that you can rent around yeah. town? Yeah. Um, my main thought on them is, you know what's uh, really disappointing is that if this guy on this scooter goes out in front of me and I run him down with my car, I won't go to jail, but I'll have to live with the fact that I killed this dude because he wanted to get somewhere a little faster. So I don't like him. Okay. There's no comprehensive insurance for your psyche. Yeah. Or just like having to explain it to everyone. <laughs> Hey, Chuck, you seem kind of down in the dumps. What happened? Oh, well, you guess what? <laughs> yeah. All right. What is your reluctant hot take on spoilers for books or movies that are more than 10 years old? Oh, okay. That's an interesting addition. 10 years. Yeah. So that would be going back to like 2009. So it's like, like don't spoil the wire for me, basically. Yeah, at this point. yeah. I mean, this isn't exactly an answer to your question, but the thing that I find about spoiler culture most maddening are the people who actively defend it. Like, I could see someone being like, you know, I hate, like, to me, I hate spoilers and anything's a spoiler. Someone will be like, oh, have you seen Succession? It's interesting. That's a spoiler to me, because that means I'm going to watch the whole thing waiting for the yeah. interesting part. Um, and then... Okay. But I, mean, I, can, I could see someone I could see someone being like, I don't care. But what drives me just batty are when people are like, no, spoiler culture is important. It's important for the discourse. You know, we have the right to discuss these things in public. It's like, so someone's enjoyment of The Empire Strikes Back is not as important as, like, your joke about it? It's like, I can't, I can't believe people are like that. Now, The Empire Strikes Back came out in 1980. So I guess you could argue that if you don't know what happened, um, it's kind of your own fault. But <laughs> Okay, another reluctant hot take from Chuck Klosterman, uh, The Deuce. What is your reluctant hot take on CBD products? Uh, CBD products, like the like the oil that you yeah, rub just into. A, but maybe the CBDization of everything. It, it seems like it's in a lot of stuff. Everybody's talking about it. It's a it's a big topic of conversation, particularly in a place like Portland. Sure, sure. You see it everywhere, and and uh, it's it's interesting that when people want it without the THC, that's a, a weird thing. It was like when remember when like marijuana wasn't legal. And there would be people trying to argue that marijuana should be legal. And their argument would be like, hemp makes great pants. It <laughs> makes the best rope. And I was like, that's not going to work. I mean, it's like, like nobody cares that much about rope, you know? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know why anybody would be against it. So I guess it would be odd if I was. <laughs> All right, last one. What is your reluctant hot take on AirPods? Okay, I don't own AirPods. Again, I, I'm, I'm, 
compelled and fascinated by people who hate them so much. They seem to suggest to some people um, a, a kind of, of elitism somehow. How is the sound quality on them? Well, That's what I'd like I to mean, know. you'd think working in radio, I'd have some sort of like finely tuned sense of sound. I don't. I can tell you that they're very convenient. I own them. But there is one design flaw, which is that the way that you pause them is you double tap them. Like it's the exact activity that you don't want to be doing when the flight attendant walks up to tell you the safety thing. And what I'm doing is pausing them. But instead, it looks like I'm just pointing in my ear like, yeah, shut up. I wish that there was a less jerkish way to make them stop playing. This, this is only vaguely related, but did you get, do you know why the Alexa is called the Alexa? It's like, why would they pick that name of anything? Is it because they think no one has that name? And then they don't got to worry about it? You can just say, Alexa, do whatever, you know? I, I just want to let you know that you just activated 300,000... Uh, Amazon devices all over America. Alexa, buy Chuck Klosterman's new book, Raised in Captivity. There you go. That's a freebie. Chuck Klosterman, everybody, right here on Livewire. Our musical guests this hour are one of my very favorite bands we've ever had on the show, and not just because they hail from my hometown of Seattle or because their name is, in fact, a palindrome. It's because you can't not feel excited when you are listening to their music. Their fourth full-length album is This Mess is a Place, and it's out now. Please welcome Taco Cat back to Livewire.
Thanks, you guys. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. Thank you so much to our guests, Chuck Klosterman, Tiffany Midge, and Taco Cat. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director, and Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound by D. Neil Blake. On-air mix by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Sarah Doan and Beverly Toledo of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how to listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, visit LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Public Radio International.